Welcome to the Crazy Good Vintage Podcast, a production of Part-Time Pickers. Here's your host, I call her Sugar because that sounds sweeter than evaporated cane juice, Kelly Gunn. Hey everybody, thanks so much for coming back to Crazy Good Vintage and for joining us on our weekly podcast. I have been humbled by the support we have been receiving from our awesome followers and am so grateful to you for allowing us to be a part of your day. Today's episode is particularly sweet, and chances are you've had a piece of this company in your pocket or purse at some point in your life. It's about a German immigrant who lived the American dream and turned a $1,000 investment into a multi-million dollar candy empire that would ultimately dominate the American confectionery industry. That iconic candy company is Brock's. But while their story is paved with sugary success, it is also weaved with great tragedy and loss and even murder. And believe it or not, they also have a Hollywood connection that will blow your mind. Now, when I think of Brock's, I think of that big pink striped pick-a-mix display. It was a candy kiosk that you would find in most of the grocery stores. And it was a pretty novel idea at the time. You took one of their white paper bags. You remember these. They had those pink stripes on it. And then you filled it to your heart's content or to your mother's content, which was pretty consistently a more reasonable measured amount. And those displays were filled with iconic choices. Neapolitan coconut, butterscotch discs, caramels, and those jelly nougats. Remember those? They were the ones that looked like little uh, fruitcakes. And of course, my favorite, the milkmaid royals that came in the colorful foil wrappers. Which, by the way, up until a couple of years ago, were still available at Wegmans. And then they just like suddenly disappeared, and I am still not over it. Well, that display was introduced to grocery stores nationwide back in 1958. But the iconic candy brand was actually established way back in 1904 by German immigrant Emil J. Brock. Now, Emil was born in Germany in 1859, and his family immigrated to America when he was a young boy and they ended up settling in Burlington, Iowa. This kid was a real go-getter. By the time he was 12, he was working in a trunk factory as well as doing part-time janitorial jobs. And those jobs paid his way through business college, and by the time he was 18, he was already managing a general store. So as manager, Emil Brock became acquainted with fellow German Charles Spohr, Charles was a traveling salesman for well-known Chicago candy maker, John Krantz. In 1881, Charles started his own candy company called Bunte Brothers and Spore and reached out to Emil and offered him a job. Over the next 15 years, Brock became disenchanted with his role as a salesman and partnered to create his very first candy company in 1896. That company failed to get footing and was ultimately sold off in 1908. 
Well, it appears that Emil jumped ship just a few years prior, took the last of his money, and invested $1,000 into a new sweet shop in Chicago called the Brock Palace of Sweets. And this time, Emil had a new commitment. He would only partner with his two teenage sons, Edwin and Frank. The store opened on a hot day in October 1904. And as Edwin would later recall, they sold many ice cream sodas at a nickel apiece, but very little candy. But remember, we're dealing with Emil Brock. He's the go-getter. And he wasn't about to let a slow start get in his way of success. The shop was ultimately open for a year. But Emil was able to create a series of significant innovations for the candy industry. Now, those innovations didn't involve new flavors or recipes. They were all focused on efficiencies and automation, allowing him to decrease the amount of hand labor required and to increase production, thus giving him the ability to produce candy at a fraction of the price of his competitors. He was able to sell his pan caramels for 50% less, and it became the launch pad for his business transforming his small retail location into a rapidly growing wholesale manufacturer for some of the biggest department stores in the area. Luckily for Emil, he passed on his great brain to both of his sons. Edwin, the eldest, had also worked for Marshall Field as a teenager and easily transitioned into a role as administrator of E.J. Brock & Sons. His younger brother, Frank, though he was only 16 when the family business bought its first factory space in 1906, was the face of the company leading their sales team, driving caramel all around Chicago. Of course, it's 1906, so they're not exactly driving cars. They're driving caramel-filled wagons all around the city. That spring, the family business relocated Brock Confections to a much larger factory, where they then introduced peanuts and hard candies to the product line, allowing their weekly output to quadruple from 3,000 pounds to 12,000 pounds. Seven short years and two additional factories later, their weekly production shot up to 250,000 pounds, which now included jelly beans, fudge, gum candies, marshmallows, and chocolate dips. So with all the success, you'd think that the three Brock guys must be rolling in dough, or sugar. But that wasn't the case. Patriarch E.J. Brock established a rule early on that the Brocks would never go into debt for the expansions they were making, no matter how tempting the prospects might be. And even though the company was producing 500,000 pounds of candy weekly by 1910, both Edwin and Frank continued to make less than $10 a week. All of the surplus money went back into the factory. As good as business was, it wasn't without its challenges. World War I had increased anti-German sentiments. And though Brock considered himself American through and through, there were those who just refused to do business with him. The company even began using the tagline, then just ask for Brock's, Brock's being spelled B-R-O-X. But the Brock family overcame the prejudice of the time and continued to grow. And by the 1920s, they were producing 2 million pounds of candy weekly 
and had once again outgrown their existing factories. In 1922, construction began on a $5 million factory, a factory that would become a very important part of the Brock story. This factory was truly state-of-the-art. It was one of the first sunlight factories, which was a factory that had windows on 50% of the wall space. But it was not only designed for efficiency's sake with all of the latest technology, but it was designed to create a very happy culture for their employees. And it had to. The company was employing over 2,000 workers at this point, and they didn't want to lose them to the growing list of competitors in the city. And while this incredible factory was the source of much future growth, it would also become well-known for incredible loss. The family itself had also become a very important part of the Brock story. The public embraced the three Brock men and were comforted that Patriarch Emil was at the helm, keeping things stable. They connected to an immigrant working for the American dream. It was important that the public always think of them as familial rather than as a multi-million dollar candy corporation. And that reputation was more important than ever when, in 1924, Emil's wife Catherine passed away. Emil was now in his mid-60s, and he started a relationship with one of the factory's file clerks. Marie Holt was her name. She was a Swedish immigrant and 30 years his junior. They were married a year later and mostly retired to Florida, leaving the day-to-day business in the hands of the sons. But it was more important than ever that Emil continue to play a role in the company's branding. The public needed to be continually reminded that Papa Brock was still around and overseer of the reliable family business. The perfect family picture was sometimes hard to maintain in reality. When in 1931, Frank's first marriage ended in divorce from wife Eunice, the mother of his two children. She filed for divorce, citing domestic abuse. When World War II came along, Brock's was eager to do its part. Brock's was awarded government contracts to produce rations for soldiers. Millions of Brock's caramels, hard candies, and box chocolates were dropped into designated C and K rations for the troops. Many more were distributed to prisoners of war via the Red Cross, and they were also sent to the USO. As was common during the war years, companies were typically asked to dedicate some of its resources to producing items outside of what they would typically produce. For Brock's, they had an entire department dedicated to making powdered eggs. Kind of funny. Being a wartime food provider certainly elevated Brock's brand nationwide, leading to its first national advertising campaign, which touted the German immigrant brand as a purveyor of patriotic. Turns out World War was good business for Brock's. They were now in need of 2,500 employees and had to have creative ways of continually recruiting new candidates. They offered them delicious home-cooked meals at cost or music while you work. White uniforms were furnished and they were laundered for free. They gave them social activities and access to a free lending library and, of course, sickness and hospital benefits, life insurance, and vacation with pay. It was really groundbreaking stuff. 
Soon after the war, sadly, Emil Brock died. And gracefully, it was one year prior to a company tragedy that would test the brand in ways they'd never been tested before. On September 7, 1948, at approximately 3 o'clock in the morning, residents of the iconic factory awoke to the sounds of an explosion, which were later described by Fire Engineering magazine as having all the effects of a super bomb of World War II. It was one of the worst industrial tragedies in Chicago's modern history, killing 15 workers and injuring several firefighters. Weeks of investigations determined the likely cause to be an electrical spark interacting with cornstarch in the air. Though the factory sprinkler system was state-of-the-art, it couldn't slow the spread. Several shift workers were on the premises and also tried in vain to slow the spread by emptying all of the available extinguishers, but ultimately perished in the blaze. Ultimately, it took a third of the Chicago Fire Department to extinguish the fire and save the factory. All agreed that if the same incident had occurred during daylight hours, hundreds more would have been killed. The explosion helped to increase awareness of the dangers of starch dust fires, and information from the investigation was shared by Brock's with candy manufacturers worldwide. As disastrous as the fire was, Brock's resiliency persevered. The 1950s and 60s, with the introduction of the Pick-A-Mix kiosk we were talking about earlier, catapulted Brock to even greater heights. A 1952 Popular Mechanics article said that today Brock's may ship out a million pounds of candy in 24 hours. Wow. Amazing when you think of that first year when they were manufacturing just 3,000 pounds a week. And in 1961, they celebrated their best sales year ever, producing 200 million pounds, which now came in more than 500 different varieties and exceeding $62 million in sales. It was also in 1961 that they went public and were traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Though the brothers were now both in their mid-60s, they were very committed to growth and expansion. Between 1955 and 1965, another 10 million was dedicated to expanding that factory once again. And staying true to their father's rule of not taking on debt, all expansions were paid for out of operations. The business continued to have no debts, no bank loans, and no mortgages. Amazing. It was the mid-60s when the fate of the family came into question for the first time. Younger brother Frank was now spending the majority of his time in retirement with his second wife, Helen, down in Florida. And sadly, company chairman Edwin Brock died in 1965. In February 1966, it was announced that E.J. Brock would be acquired by American Home Products, a leading conglomerate. As part of the deal, the Chicago plant would continue to operate independently, and Frank Brock would remain as its CEO. Sadly, Frank Brock died just a few years later in 1970. So typically, that would be the end of the story, right? But the Brock story had a few distressing chapters yet to go. Let's talk for a minute about Frank's wife, Helen. In 1950, Helen was working as a coat check girl in a country club in Florida where Frank was a member. The two fell in love and were married. He was 60 and she was 38. 
When Frank died in 1970, he left his entire fortune to Helen, which is interesting to me because he had two children from his first marriage. In 1977, the widow fell victim to a horse trading scheme. She became romantically involved with Richard Bailey, a well-known Lothario in the horse trading business. Story is that he would approach wealthy women, romance them, and sell them what he claimed to be prize-winning horses for thousands and thousands of dollars, when in actuality, they were worthless, sometimes unhealthy horses. Some say Richard was just a front man for the mafia who actually headed up the horse trading ring, and that they helped him get rid of Helen when she threatened to expose them after swindling her out of millions of dollars. Long story short, she never returned home from a doctor's appointment and was never seen or heard from again. No body was ever found, and she was declared legally dead seven years later. It's been said that those involved dissolved her body in a chemical vat or blast furnace in 1977. In 1995, Bailey pleaded guilty to racketeering and conspiracy that included horse sale frauds against Helen Brock and numerous other women. But at an unusual sentencing hearing, federal prosecutors established that he was also responsible for Helen's disappearance and death, something he had always denied. He served most of a 30-year sentence and was released from Florida prison in July 2019. And what of that Hollywood connection I promised you at the beginning? The one that would blow you away? Remember the $5 million factory that was built in 1922? State-of-the-art Art Deco masterpiece that positioned the Brocks for success? In October of 2007, part of the building was famously blasted to bits for a special effects sequence in the blockbuster Batman film, The Dark Knight. Heath Ledger's Joker can be seen casually walking away from the burning administration building, which was standing in for Gotham City Hospital. And if you go to our website, crazygoodvintage.com, I've attached a YouTube link from that scene in the movie, as well as great pictures of the Brock family and their business. The remainder of the 1922 factory was finally demolished in 2014. Wow, what a sad and crazy ride. What an amazing company. I just loved researching this one. Such a story. I really hope you've enjoyed learning about the Brock Candy Empire as much as I did. And now it's time for your crazy good flashback. Did you know? All six members of the then fairly new British comedy troupe Mighty Python, including John Cleese and Michael Palin, expressed interest in playing the lead role in the 1971 film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But in 1971, the film's director, Mel Stewart, did not consider them to be big enough names for an international audience, so Gene Wilder was cast to play the now iconic role. Crazy, right? If you like the show, take a minute to subscribe to the podcast. We are grateful for the support. And if you have any suggestions for future podcasts please email me at kelly at crazygoodvintage.com. Until next time, this is Kelly Gunn, your part-time picker, signing off. We'll see you on the Pickin' Trail.